ASI, Attitudes of Sexual Integrity. This is Season 4 of this here podcast. My name is Russ Shaw, and you're listening to Episode 22. for the ultimate challenge. What are we talking about? Is it a change of attitude or a change of behavior that's going to work long term? Is it a change of our mind and our cognitions or is it a change of heart that's going to take root in the long run? Yes, went all the way into the archives for that bumper there from 2005. Uh, And that's about how long this podcast has been around. Again, this is... My name is Russ Shaw. I started this podcast in November of 2005, so it's almost 10 years old now. And started it just moving through some of the struggles that I saw in overcoming some pretty heavily stubborn um, pornography issues, all right? I was a porn addict. Okay, uh, that's oh, it's compulsion, Russ. You're not supposed to say sexual addiction anymore. The news buzzword term is sexual compulsion. You have a sexual compul. You know, it's a bad habit. I had a horrible bad habit for a lot of years, and I saw some victory over that. I had a year clean from pornography. I started this podcast, and I had no idea how deep. The rabbit hole went, so to speak, when it came to um, really finding the good, clear definition of what sexuality is and why and defining words like freedom and love and affection and motivation, right? Why do we do what we do? Um, All of those things have been involved in this almost decade-long conversation known as the ASI podcast. And today, I get to interview Paul Young again. Um, It's an honor and a privilege. And, you know, when I started this thing 10 years ago, I had no idea anybody would even listen, right? I just started a kind of audio blog. And in 2005, I couldn't afford a digital recorder, so I used a tape recorder. Right, I used an audio cassette tape, little tape recorder thing, and then I would encode that into the computer and upload it on to the internet. And that was the early podcast, man. It was me driving around in my car, me down here in my basement, and just talking about what was on my heart, having guests on the show from books that were making an impact or... I was curious about, you know, authors, and today, again, for the second time, I get to interview a a man who's written The Shack, right? He's got a new book out called Eve now, and if you would have told me 10 years ago that I would be able to talk with a guy who sold one of the most best-selling books of all time, um, I would have thought you're nuts. It's it's a, a huge blessing, and uh, I, I'm just humbled and honored that there are ears that hear this thing, and uh, again, so that's what's going on today with that. But before I get to my interview with Paul, I wanted to uh, cover a few things going on in the podcast, going on in my own life. Um, 
I was in the pizza business for 20 years. A lot of the podcasts you've listened to, if you've listened to this thing in the past, um, have been me driving around on the road. I did my best thinking while driving, and that was a lot of me going back and forth between runs as a pizza guy, but not like a delivery guy where you call up and order a pizza and some guy comes to your house. That's not what I did. I did more corporate events. I would set up standing orders with companies like Nintendo, you know, Warner Brothers Video Games. Uh, There was other companies, a bunch of different companies, and I would show up once a week, like a standing order type of thing, and I would try and do my best to service those accounts weekly in order to make a living. So that's what I did for 20-plus years, actually. My son, who is now 20 years old, uh, he was a baby when I started doing this full-time as a self-employed person, and I've left that job, so I'm no longer a pizza guy. I know, I know, but it's good, all right? I'm uh, driving people around the city, meeting different folks. It's It's a whole new experience with more of a future, and it gives me more time and freedom to create... Uh, to do some writing and to really pursue some of my gifts and talents, I guess, if you could call them that. Um, My relationship with my wife, you know, trying to make a little more money, and we can uh, spend some more time, hopefully, and invest more in our relationship. We spent so much time broke because of the pizza business and how it just was in decline and part of that was my recovery part of it was the economy but even when the economy started to pick back up again um, the store was more busy than I was and they weren't making as much money off me than they were other clients so that was something that I had to deal with but it's been it's been a blessing you know it's a tough season when you have to change jobs and that's part of why I didn't do podcasts for the last three four weeks is trying to get into a new rhythm of understanding what it's going to look like with this new job which is basically I have a job that's basically a, a app on my smartphone and when I turn it on I'm working and when I turn it off I'm not so I'm just trying to understand how that all works um, some of you may be thinking, uh, Russ, the Uber Lyft thing, isn't there some temptation in that? Haven't I read some news stories? Isn't there naughty people who do rideshare? And uh, yeah, there is. Uh, but again, I was in the pizza business for 20 years. All right. Part of my temptations uh, being in that business, it's not much different than this, but it is different because with this, I have a track record everywhere I go and everyone I've been in contact with there's a there's a record of all of that so a little different than the pizza business that way and really something that I talk about in the show a lot is there's a difference between triggers and temptations um triggers it's one of those words from the recovery area that I'd like I like to revisit and I've maybe stirred some controversy up over but it's very true that when we're triggered it's a temptation there's a theological words maybe the word temptation but you're not you don't necessarily just get overcome by a trigger all of the time and why we're triggered is a, a big reason why I even do this podcast, all right? Because that's <laughs> triggers are a big one. So, am I worried? No. And I'll tell you why. There's something to isolation, all right? Not having behind the counter type of guys, and you're not having, and I'm not going to use the word accountability partners because, and maybe that's part of my rebel spirit. Like, I don't really give a crap what you think of me, in, <laughs> even if you're my friend. That make me sound a little dark, but it's true, right? Like, you know, I'm just going to be me, I'm just going to put it out there, and I'm less likely to have this. Like, I've heard guys say that in recovery, and and maybe some of that's from isolation. I guess me being sort of an extrovert, I'm sort of an introverted extrovert, right? Like I like my time alone, but I also like my time with other people. And when I'm around other people, 
when I earlier when I was a younger man, I was pretty comfortable and confident with myself around other people, but I always had this barrier, right? And and I could be fake and I could put up a facade and I could put up a front and you know, it, it was part of my security blanket sort of socially. And so I wouldn't let you behind the counter and I would just be me and I didn't really care that much what you thought of me. But when I could when I can be a safe place for others, then they can be a safe place for me, right? So this is different than just um, accountability thinking. And I think that there's something good to have an accountability partner, but those people need to be your friends, right? In the, in the sense of respect. Do you respect them? Um, can you respect them? Can you get to know them? Can If they let you in, does that give you some confidence towards their um, person, right? Is to being a trustworthy brother, all right? Because I think there's difference, a big difference between accountability partners and brothers and sisters, right? It's different language. It's a different paradigm relationally, I believe. So yes, accountability partners, great. Find some people you can trust, all right? That's important. But maybe I can Maybe I've uh, explained those two worlds. Uh, if if I haven't, Russ at asi247.org. I'm trying to articulate the difference between, you know, just the label accountability partner and the reality of having a trusted brother in Christ because um, that's important. So, yes, um, temptations different than triggers and being uh, around other people doesn't necessarily mean you're not isolated, all right? Having an accountability partner is great, but having a trusted friend and brother who you give, like my friend Jim Henderson said, walk-in rights, you know? That's something else. That takes trust. And trust takes risk. And risk is something that happens in in tight relationships. So there you go. In 12 minutes, I've explained my new job. <laughs> I have a new job. There you go. Uh, this is part of trusting God, too, by the way. Um, moving in that direction, you know, I've always had these anxiety problems with you know, learning new stuff, getting around new people, trusting the change. I'm, I love to stay comfortable in my stuff. I could have just rode the pizza business comfortably right down into bankruptcy, but that's not, that's not life. That's not moving the story forward, is it? And so this was kind of a taking a step out and trusting God in this situation. And, uh, I feel fairly confident with the decision so but i feel more confident that god loves me and has uh goodness for for even me a busted up ex junkie sex freak like myself and i'm grateful for uh people who create smartphone apps <laughs> right uh, right? God blesses some people with some gifts, right? And that's a good one. That's a good gift, uh, technology. For So I salute you in the uh, tech industry. I do. Uh, closing that, boom, let's close that up and, and start towards something else. Uh, the new Facebook page, I've changed the Facebook page uh, from Meet Russ Shaw because I thought it was a little narcissistic. No, I'm just, I'm kidding. I wanted to, when I created this, this page, uh, Meet Russ Shaw, I wanted it to be, you know, not the sex addict page. Like, who's going to join that? Like, when it comes to your friends, because your friends and your family, they see your Facebook page, right? And if you belong to a group that's, um, I have problems with sexual compulsion issues, right? I mean, that would be a bad group to share with your friends attitudes of sexual integrity i belong to that group and i'm proud i don't think that you should be proud i don't i don't right <laughs> it's just one of those weird things so i did want to start a group that was more poignant to what i talk about what i want to share on that page and what i do share here 
because this is one of the most listened to shows that no one wants to admit they listen to, which is interesting. And not that I'm, I'm all about getting the most Facebook likes. Like, I don't really care that much, all right? This thing isn't all about me and me pointing to, oh, look at the numbers, right? Don't care that much. But I do want the message of this podcast to make more of an impact simply because, I mean, the Ashley Madison story is coming out. That's, that's one reason. Right? It's not about me. There is ears that need to hear this message and, and may be thirsty for it. So that's why I did it. Uh, because there's like 58 likes on there. This show has been downloaded hundreds of thousands of times. But it's... Yeah, I, I find it funny. Approaching 400,000 downloads and 58 likes. <laughs> anyway, the new page is called... Wait for it. Wait for it. You ready? Heart, Mind, Love, Sex, and Affection. So that's the new name of the page. Heart, Mind, Love, Sex, and Affection. Oh! I know, right? I'm having a little fun with sound effects today, as you can tell. So yes, if you'd like to be more interactive with the podcast, ASI247.org, you should like, if you'd like that page, then you'll be connected with the group Heart, Mind, Love, Sex, and Affection, which is different than Meet Russ Shum, right? Because maybe you've met me and we've hung out. I don't know. So if you've already met me, why would you want to meet me again? We know each other. We're cool. So, as the ACDC is playing in the background, and speaking of triggers and temptations, if I am to speak some of my own story and having a soundtrack for that, before the entrepreneurial pizza endeavor, uh, when I was 16, this song, uh, it hit my ears about 1984. It came out in 1974. I heard one guy in his 20s say, oh yeah, ACDC's my dad's music, you know. And it's funny how we get attracted to the soundtrack of our youth. Is that why we get stuck in old music, you know? As we get older, we it's like that soundtrack to our emotions and our love life. And we hear a song and it brings us back to a snapshot in time. It's like, as young adults, teenagers, that's the time. You know, this is a social construct of awakening emotionally is where our romantic side starts to be birthed out right it's where we see relationships and heartbreak and does this person like me or not like me and all of that you know scary fuzziness combined with a soundtrack comes together and you know it's not just foolish kid teenage dream stuff all right it's real tangible life experience emotionally, sexually, um, spiritually even, when it comes to being accepted and loved by someone else, you know? So this song for me brings me back to, I had been in a few relationships and I had trust issues, had my heart broken a couple times, and sometimes us guys, do we fear intimacy? Does past experience or fear of future experience have us devalue women as playthings? And do we just want to blame Eve? I think it's a valid question and a question Paul Young is going to address in his new book.
right, Mr. Paul Young, once again on the ASI podcast. Welcome, sir. Russ, it's always a pleasure and an honor to be with you. Thank you so much, man. You're, uh... Your books are awesome. The last time I talked to you, I hadn't read any of your books. I had started The Shack and, uh, you know, still kind of weird about, like, uh, I was going, again, going to Mars Hill Church and Pastor uh, Mark having all this criticism towards your books. And, and I'm not a guy who reads a lot anyway, right? I'm more of an audio learner and I, I learn via audio. So if somebody wants to give me an excuse not to read something, I'll usually take it. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> but I really didn't realize how your writing, dude, you know, I'll say this because I, 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 I believe it, man. You are kind of a modern day C.S. Lewis for our time. I mean, you take some really good ways of thinking and theologically and you put them into these stories like you say they're fiction but they're true and uh it's an honor to to speak to you again man thank you i don't think i'll ever be the writer lewis was but uh but i'm working toward it and i think if you started reading eve you'll see that i'm maturing as a writer which i'm thrilled about (laughs) there's always room for improvement until dementia takes over and then you can think anything (laughs) that's right yeah (laughs) I almost kind of look forward to that, you know, and you don't, you don't get the angry emails that way. I have a friend who says he's looking forward to the day that he only needs one good movie. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Then it's new all over again. Exactly. I've never <laughs> seen this. Yes. Yes, you have. Um, you uh, kick, We kicked this off with a little bit of uh, ACDC. I thought, I, I thought that would be appropriate. There's a, a song called Soul Stripper. <laughs> where, oh, nice. Where a little, the artist, a little Tesla. <laughs> there where he kicks it off with uh, talking about Eve, and uh, it's sort of a negative song. But there is a lot of guys who, um, you wrote this book, Eve. I want to get into that, but I want to kind of set up maybe why some guys may be listening as well. Uh, and I've got these emails over the years that some folks will um, kind of scapegoat women into the sense that... Uh, man, they're just too hot, or God made them, or God made sex too good, or, you know, the temptress, and, and, and all of that, and uh, visiting uh, this, this book, Eve, you, you were talking about some of the, uh, some of the ways that men and women have, in, in church, it, it's, sex is such a hard thing to talk about, and gender roles can get in there and mixed in, and do you go into any of that with, with this new work? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because uh, traditionally women have been uh, absolutely scapegoated. And, uh, and, it, and it's a worldwide phenomenon. Right. I think, uh, you know, the, one of the questions that I was trying to investigate or explore, which was a, over a 40-year question that I never thought I would write about, which I have now. <laughs> and that is, if men are so obviously more screwed up than women, how come they're in charge? You know, because I grew up in the evangelical fundamentalist frame of reference, and so yeah, there's huge scapegoating, and and one of those questions that I that has emerged from all this, in terms of the Genesis story, um, is would you rather be in a relationship with someone who is trusting enough to be gullible? Or would you rather be in a relationship with someone who will betray you on purpose? And, you know, the, the beauty in the story is that the, there is no blame shifted in her direction. And the New Testament's very clear. Eight passages in the New Testament say sin entered through one man. Right. And, and that gives a different spin on the whole story. So now we've got to go and re- frame the entire narrative and that's what i'm trying to do in part inside this story that's what uh, that's what i like about your work and the way you frame a narrative so to speak and taking truths and and packaging them into um, um stories so the reader has to there's something that you said uh i heard you say i, I think it's an interview or, or something you were talking about you know and it reminded me of this uh this conversation between Tolkien and Lewis, where Tolkien's going, why don't you just write more stories? And, and Lewis was trying to, you know, he writes theology books. And you started a blog, which I wanted to talk about later, which is really cool, a different kind of conversation. Um, but, you know, that's, that's kind of what is really cool about your work is taking those ideas and framing the narratives. 
Um, so well, we always we already bring a narrative, and and part of the fundamentalist history is that our narrative is the right narrative, right? Whatever it is, you know. And uh, so we've got a little community of people who've agreed that this is the narrative, even if the scripture doesn't say that. <laughs> it's the narrative, <laughs> right? And uh, and then those things dominate the way we think. And as a person believes in their heart, so are they. So our experience then is interpreted through that narrative. And the question is, is the narrative accurate? And part of what I love about Jewish scholarship is that they have a great deal of humility when it comes to the text. And um, so they, uh, there's a line that Jacques Ellul quotes about Jewish scholarship, and I don't know where it originates, but it goes something like this, that the rabbis believed that every text had 77 correct meanings plus the one that God knows. <laughs> right. And and that kind of space then allows a conversation to exist that actually impacts the narrative. And then you begin to see a consistency in that narrative and it opens up space for you to start to be free. Right. And um and I love that. Yeah, that's something I noticed with the the fall of Mars Hill is that there's so many folks who you know, you look at all the denominations. What there's thirty or forty thousand denominations that are registered, and everybody's—they think they got the right interpretation of the Bible. Like we—we've got it. We're gonna brand it here. We're Baptist. We're Presbyterian. We, bam, we, you know, and we—we we think we have these ideas about about how that all goes. And, and yeah, you know that um, the Greek has a word for a accusation or accuser, which is a word that is linked to the devil, right? right and uh, right. Satan, Satan, the accuser, right. the divider. And the Greek word is kategorizomai. Oh, wow. To, to separate into categories. So when you participate in the separation into categories, then you are participating in something that is diabolical to the core. Wow. And, and that should give us pause to go like, Let's change the conversation, begin to talk about the things which we have in common, which is our unity and our humanity, and therefore in Jesus, and then talk about who we are inside that. Very true, man. And and getting past all of our, you know, the, the picture of the table, uh, I love that. And you have that picture, again, on your blog, everybody's seated at the table where we can all enjoy and be at the table. Um I wanted to talk about you. Uh, you were a rock and roll DJ in Canada for a little while. Speaking of ACDC. Yeah, really. CKCK Radio, Regina, and then uh, CGIB in Vernon and CFTK in Terrace. And you also had your, so your, I love your relationship with rock and roll a little bit because at the end of your book, Crossroads, you actually had some like uh, music references, kind of credits to like Imagine Dragons and, and stuff oh, yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, I love Plus you'll that. always give you'll you'll see me in everything. Give credits to Bruce Coburn just because I'm a Bruce Coburn. Uh, what do they call a burnhead? I guess I'd be a burnhead. <laughs> so, going back to that time uh, where you were uh, DJing, and how, how, how what found you there, Paul? That's that's interesting that you were a rock uh, DJ. Well, you know, when I graduated high school, I graduated six months early, and. Um, and I needed a job. So I walked into the local radio station and said, um, can I fill out an application? And they said, they looked at me, I'm, I'm 17, right? Right. And so like, have you ever done any radio work? I said, no, but I, I was an actor in drama plays and in high school, <laughs> I, you know, here I am preacher's kid in town, small town. And I, and in our town, I had two parts, the atheist professor and the drunken preacher. <laughs> you, know, you know, and so I said, um, but I, and they said, well, we're in a bind. Um, you see, our number one rock and roll disc jockey got, had to be fired, and we're really sad about it, but he left his microphone on and was dealing pot over the air. Oh, no. And uh, so we really need somebody right now. So they trained me for 24 hours, and then I was on the air. Wow. And, and, you know, if you had those first shifts that I did, they would probably rank somewhere in the Comedy Hall of Fame because I had to, I not only was on the air, I had to produce my own shows. I had to run the equipment. And it was all the old spin the, the platter sort of stuff. And, and um, 
but at, already by then, music had had a huge impact on me. Right. Um, I found that music had a way of penetrating past all my defenses and finding places that were still soft right. uh, in spite of all the crap that I'd gone through. And then um, that just grew. So when I went to Bible school, I got a job at CKCK Radio in Regina, Saskatchewan, and, which is a huge station. Uh -huh. And then, so I would do six to midnight rock and roll, and then drive like a hundred miles an hour in the in somebody's car back to the because I was so amped up, you know, right. get back to the Bible school, and then get everything back under control. To, to what year was that, that that this happened? Those were seventy six, seventy seven, right oh, in wow. that time frame. Right on. And, yeah, so, uh, so that's kind well. of a little bit before the whole. Uh, Oh, evangelical world overdrive taking care of business all oh, right there you, you go know, that, that's that era but um, but the stations that I worked for did all kinds of music the first station I did um, had uh, um, middle of the road mornings country western afternoons and rock and roll in the evenings and by the end of that summer that I started I was on the air 45 hours a week which is unheard of. <laughs> right. and uh, but I you know it was also a TV station so I was doing all kinds of stuff that was a kind of a shift over. So it was a huge education wow. <laughs> and a learning curve. But um, I'm, I've always been grateful for that experience. All oh. these disc jockeys are like me. They're little short guys, you know, that had voices. <laughs> <laughs> Big voices. It's like Paul Young, the Canadian Howard Stern, right? Yeah, not really. No. <laughs> not no, I was too, too scared and religious to be a Howard Stern. <laughs> <laughs> that's That's awesome, though. Music's always been important to me. That was before the evangelical world declared uh, war oh, on no, rock and roll. Was oh, was this, it? Oh, yeah. This is when Larry Norman showed up, and 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 we had a deep uh, inhalation of breath that somebody could could cross the lines between secular music that was speaking to our hearts and and music that also involved our faith. And and uh, so you know, Larry Norman really kicked off a lot of wonderful things. And um, really was prophetic, kind of a, you know, kind of a, who would you identify him with? Ezekiel. So he's kind of nuts, but but he really had a way of putting things into words and was a great craftsman and a good, good musician, too. And um, so that started happening, the Jesus um, music started rising up, but there was a lot of affinity between some of that and uh, and what I was hearing inside the quote-unquote secular culture. I'm not a big fan of splitting, um, yeah. again, categorizing the world into secular spiritual stuff like the Greeks taught us how to do. So, But, um, you know, I think all music is embedded with with the ability of the Holy Spirit to speak to hearts. So, Yeah, I love that. That's what Johnny Cash said. You know, are you a Christian artist? And he said, no, I'm an artist who's a Christian. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's leave it yeah. at that, which which I thought was awesome, and you know, there's it, it still goes on to this day. Like there's a rap artist uh, that I enjoy, and he was interviewed, and you know, or is this uh, what they call it, holy hip hop? Is that what this is? And he says, hey, I'm I'm a Christian that writes songs, and this is what comes from my heart. You know, I don't like to categorize it into this is Christian, this isn't, because when you do that, you start to water down what's really impacting your soul. Because if yeah. I can categorize it as religious music, then then yeah. it's not serious, right? Well, one, one of my favorite verses, especially if I'm talking to uh, Pentecostals and Charismatics, who, who I love dearly, I do, and um, and they have some freedoms that I'm I'm working toward, and, and I can't wait to be freed up about some of that. But um, <laughs> I'm not there yet. But um, one of my favorite verses is their kind of passage, which is Acts two, and in it it says. Uh, Peter gets up and he says, okay, so this is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel in that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. Right. And in that group of people, there aren't any Christians. That's right. Right? And so, and he's saying all flesh. So this is why you can listen to an Elton John song and it will stir something deep inside of you. Mm. And it's because, the whole, you know, the Holy Spirit is active in every single human being's life. You know, and um, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. You have dreams. You have, and this is across the board. It's not inside a specific sort of category. Those categories, I don't think, were intended to continue to exist. Right. Galatians. You know, in Christ there is neither 
slave nor or free nor Jew nor Greek male, male female. female yeah amen yeah. that's true yes. yeah that was me and, and part of my story you know growing up with some of the damage that I went through and then going to church and kind of hearing the same messages that my you know the abuse in me kept telling me that I was a piece of garbage that I was not worthy um, that I was not only the abuse told you the theology told you right that's right. But the theology was backing up the abuse. And yeah. then the guy, then I hear a guy named Ozzy Osbourne, right, who writes a song called uh, uh, You Can't Kill Rock and Roll, you know. Yeah. And some of the lyrics in that song were, um, you, just, you just don't understand. Like, there's something in here you don't understand. You're, you're hurting me with your lies, and, and you just don't get me, you know. And that, that kind of... That, that, that impacted my heart, it impacted my soul, and then I hear that same crowd saying that that music is from the devval, you know, and I'm like, what, yeah. what are you supposed to Syncopated believe? Syncopated music, uh, a mighty fortress aside, which is, you know, Luther's most famous syncopated song. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? A mighty fortress is our God. Oh, yeah. That was syncopated. And when Luther wrote it, he wrote it syncopated, which, and then you had this whole Christian thing about syncopated music, you know, the beat and all that is right. primal, it's of the devil and all that. And Larry Norman comes out with, why should the devil have all the good music? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Amen. And that's what I like about your work. You're not afraid to talk about people's demons or the fact that people even have demons. Reminds me of the line from that movie, The Usual Suspects, right? Where the biggest lie that the devil ever promulgated on humanity is tricking people that he doesn't exist. Some of what you do for the religious crowd or folks of faith is helping them realize that they have demons and those demons really do exist. When the days are cold and the cards all fold and the saints we see are all made of gold. When your dreams all fail and the wounds we hail are the worst of all and the bloods run stale. I wanna hide the truth, I wanna share of Imagine Dragons, that uh, little bumper, uh, the song Demons, it's probably one of my favorite songs by by those guys. And when I grew up, you weren't even allowed to say the word, you'd go to hell. Really? So, just for saying demons? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. We were always on the uh, victimized side of the universe, you know. It was a big war going on, <laughs> and we, we needed to find our way to defend ourselves. Right, you had to play defense all the time, right? Yep, magic words. Well, Halloween must have not been so much fun. Well, you know, uh, I, I grew up in the highlands of New Guinea, so there wasn't a lot of Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to deal with evil spirits, they were like for real. I could imagine. Wow. Yeah, the uh, the missionary kid uh, syndrome. I have a few friends that grew up in, in you know, kind of. it was more of a vacation for them. Like they went there, they were there for months you know a few months but it was it was, it was a way different <laughs> culture right yeah 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 <laughs> a little culture shock but it was sort of the norm for you right like you were out there for a while well i i was a year old when we went in and then uh came back to canada when i was almost 10 so yeah that's a while that's wow. my childhood basically and from some of the stuff you said it was uh it was pretty grisly at times as far as uh sexual abuse and yeah yeah that part of it is really tragic um so it it had the horrific side it had the incredible wonder side there's a lot about growing up in a different culture in a different world um that has huge advantages i think that's partly why i'm able to think easily outside the box is because i have that kind of a heritage and i'm right. grateful for that yeah some of the other elements some of the 
rigorous religious agenda and all that kind of stuff was a little difficult. But um, but there were some real treasures in growing up uh, in a multicultural environment. Right, and you got to see kind of the and that's and that's part of my question. Part of why I love this book is that you you go into some of that story and you're man you're going after some of the the sacred cows as far as uh dealing with the creation story so lily who has some damage of her own right i yeah, mean similar similar to mine yes yeah yeah but and she, she ends up in the place in touch with it. yeah yeah exactly she doesn't she she has memory loss to some of the tragedy that she's been through and we won't give away her whole story but I could just I could just hear it now. Some of the theology police when when uh, when Lily kind of I mean Lily she witnesses the the creation story and John opens the book and and I like that you mentioned that uh, the Bible wasn't written in English right so the book of Genesis it wasn't written in old uh, you know King James language right right. And we talk even, about we don't even read the English very well, let alone the Hebrew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's so many different translations, which I like. Yeah, Hebrew, you but... know, the Hebrew language itself is pretty pretty phenomenal. It's it's very small. Um, you know, there in in terms of the Hebrew scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament, there's only like 8,600 unique words, and. Uh, wow. You know, the, the nouns only comprise a little over 3,000, I believe, compared with somewhere between a half and a million uh, English nouns. So, you know, uh, nouns did a lot of different things. Plus, you didn't have your punctuation and you didn't have separation of, of letters. So there's all kinds of mystery that is woven into the Hebrew language and, and many ways to come at it. I, I, I think that's why the Hebrew scholars you know, would say that there are 77 correct meanings of every passage plus the one that God knows. <laughs> that's right. I think that's great humility. I listened to uh, multiple lectures uh, by Bible uh, teachers, scholars. I, that's one cool thing about my job and the Internet. You know, I, I found this thing on iTunes called iTunes U where you can listen to you can basically be a fly on the wall at all sorts of different colleges all over the world. And, and I listened to multiple hours of, uh, you know, theology, uh, Bible college stuff. And, and one of the things that, that I took away from, from that about Hebrew was that one professor was saying that it's, it's a highly metaphorical language. Like the whole language itself is kind of birthed out of metaphor and yeah. story. Yep, and and that is, that's kind of what you're talking about with the with the nouns and stuff, right? And the yeah, and and we revert the, to story. I think human beings are stories, so we revert to them. And um, yeah, we created you know we created a narrative for Genesis, and and the narrative is incredibly powerful. I think it's a lot of it is false, but it is the one right. that we that we have you know those are the glasses that we looked through. And now we just assume that what we're seeing is what's there, and a lot of times it's not. So that's part of the beauty of being able to explore it. And one thing, and I'll even go a step further into the into the controversy here, as a guy who's done this kind of ministry for nine years, um, dealing with some of the emails. Uh, I mean, I'm honored to have uh, encountered the people I have and have been able to hopefully uh, speak some help and hope into the lives of people who've gone through similar situa situations uh, as mine and yours, Paul. And one of the things I've seen, uh, again, this is going to be a bit controversial, is that that narrative and the way that we have interpreted that Genesis story um, is part of the problem. And I'll even go as so far as to say, you know, that maybe some of stuff that culture learned from the Genesis story, from religious people, I'll just say it that way, right, um, about women and the value of women, as it was interpreted that way, could be part of why we objectify women, why we treat women as, as property, right? I, I agree with that. Not only that, I don't think we even understand what being human is about. So we've, do, we've defined humanity largely in masculine terms. 
and yet so much of how we understand the Holy Spirit and the character of Jesus would rank itself in terms of our definitions as feminine, gentleness, kindness, goodness, patience. You know, so you've got this juxtaposition where the revelation of God comes into the world in much more feminine language. Um, and we've defined humanity in much more power-oriented, dominion, domineering type language. And yeah, I think that that our narrative for Genesis is partly to self-justify ourselves, especially those who are in power, which would be men, uh, largely. Right. Right, and we like our systems, don't we? You know, we like our uh, we like to put things in in boxes, sort of. We like to work on stuff. Like, you know, I'm working on my stuff. Or we go to the gym and try and accomplish things. Uh, when a friend, I've noticed this with guys too. Like when a friend has an issue, we're, we're a lot, unless we know that person really well, a lot of us, maybe it comes with age. Like as a younger man, I saw myself doing this. Like trying to help solve your buddy's problem. Like what can I do? And that's good, right? But it's not always relational. Like we're not trying to have understand, sit in their shoes, so to speak. You know, does that make sense, Paul? It seems that as totally men, we and, and it, it makes sense to the Genesis narrative because there is yeah. there is a turning away from God, and God is where we find our identity, our worth, our value, our the understanding of who we are as human beings. And when we turn away, we create mythology. And when the woman in the story turns away from God, she turns to a relationship. And so she begins to look to the man to give her identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, all that. Only which God can provide. And then the man right. doesn't, doesn't even turn to a relationship. The man turns to the ground and the works of his hands. So right. you've got this movement inside the Genesis story where the turning is to their proximate source. The, the woman who is drawn out of the man, the male, uh, looks to him. The male who is drawn out of the ground looks to the ground. And uh, the call of redemption or reconciliation or transformational change is to return, to turn back face-to-face -face with God. But the man is locked into looking to the ground, territory, property, the works of his hands, his career, what he's able to produce and perform, all of that then becomes what he looks to for identity, worth, value, security, and you're back to the gym. You know, it's all about comparing and competing and contrasting and, uh, and fighting. And you wonder why women fundamentally are healthier. It's because they at least in their turning turn to relationship, which is much more like right. God than turning to the ground. And that's some of what you do in this book. Like I, I remember during the last interview, you talked about some of your writing process and and how a story isn't like preaching at someone, right? Like you, you talk about creating spaces where you deal with a certain dissonance. And, and I think, I, I guess what my question is, is does this book kind of stir that relational dissonance Yeah, and as a man reading it, like I, I could see my wife uh, getting maybe more of the relational stuff, but it, but as a guy reading it, it, it helps me see that dissonance. So I guess, you know, does it, is it stirring that relational dissonance and then and, and in this narrative kind of working to solve Lily's, you know, um, distrust because yeah. she has truth, that, right? Truth always, yeah, truth is always, it always stirs up dissonance. You know, anything <laughs> yeah. that challenges the existing paradigm stirs up dissonance. And that's because, you know, we are, we've created our strongholds. This is a place that we then define everything around us. And relationship is what creates dissonance. It, it just enters, uh, you know, ask any married man. You entered a mystery and you lost control. And um, right. it's because you're dealing with person. You're dealing with relationship. You're dealing with something that you cannot just dominate and manage as much as men want to try and sometimes uh, really attempt in very dysfunctional ways to do that, and uh, so yeah, yeah, it stirs it stirs up all that. But I wasn't I wasn't trying to stir that up. I was trying to explore the question about our humanity. What is the basis of our humanity? And I think that what the book does it opens up uh, 
a possibility of having an entirely different conversation than the one that has dominated the landscape with regard to male, female, gender, roles, all of that stuff, which has been largely scale language. And it opens up an entirely different possibility that, that says there's an invitation here to freedom for all of us. And, and right. that's what I'm hoping happens. And it's it's sort of like um, a, a continuation of some of the stuff that you go through in the shack with with the uh, the Trinity, right? The Trinitarian way we understand God and God the Father. We we use words like He, right? When we <laughs> that's it's it, I, I continue to sometimes I read some of these reviews on on like the shack and how how many guys have a problem with you. Um, refer, you know, Papa was written as a, a black woman, yeah. right? And, and we, yeah. we don't like that. We don't like that. The theologians don't like that. Some of them well, don't. The theologians, I tell you, overall, the theologians actually love that, and especially if right. they're patristic or early church theologians. Um, the the ones who who have a difficult time uh, tend to be those who really are entrenched in their power system. So if job security right. is involved, and you know, uh, if, if let me put it this way, if the male has looked to the ground, and so we create identity and worth and value out of the works of our hands, which would include the ministry, if you want to be very specific. So when women enter the ministry, all of a sudden we're not just competing against the men who are already there, who are all fighting for territory. We now have the intrusion of women who a lot of times are better at this and they're now <laughs> going to compete for us. And so it's better if we just establish a religious proposition that puts women in their place than to have to compete with them. And, uh, yes. and, and I think that's partly where some of that came from. I think job security has a greater impact on interpreting Scripture than almost anything else. Yeah, it does. And it also, uh, job security is also why... So many pastors can't be honest. So many, you know, when it comes to this, that's why this is the, the this is the podcast that so many people listen to, but few want to admit that they listen to, right? Like this yeah. show doesn't have a lot of subscribers, but it has a lot of listeners because we can't. It, it's so hard to be honest, and I get it. But at the same time, if we're not honest, then it's like you said, it's just it's just that system. And as far as the theologians that disagree with uh, with Papa being a black woman, you know what? When I ask, usually when I get a chance to ask Paul, it's always, oh well, I haven't read it. Like I'll say that. So did you read the shack? Yeah. No, I haven't read it, but I heard from another guy, <laughs> and I yeah, said, no. really? Ninety-nine. You know? Yeah, ninety-nine percent of the people who don't like the shack have not read it. I I absolutely believe that. That's <laughs> been my experience. You know, my first uh, my first protesters. Um, with the picket signs and everything outside of a big deal in Orlando that I was speaking at. And, and I took them bottles of water because it was like 100 degrees outside, and they were working up a sweat. And one of the guys asked me and if I worked there. And, and I uh -huh. said, no. Uh, but, and he said, so why are you handing out water? And I said, well, you know, I, I wrote the book you're mad about. <laughs> and he, he said, what? <laughs> so they all gathered around, and we start talking. We talked for about 15 minutes, and I came to I, – I, I, I discovered that not one of the protesters had actually read it. Not one of them. And, wow. and they, you know, but, you know, those are my people. Let me tell you, I grew up inside that world and I, those are my people. And I, and I right. understand what they're afraid of. I understand, you know, um, what they're all uh, up in arms about. I do. I get that. And, uh, and um, I know what makes them angry and, and why. So, uh, you know, people, People are people. They they bring to the table what they have, and in that moment, those that's what those guys had. You know that anger and fear, and that's what they had, and they were offering. Yeah. And so, um, you know, there's there's a possibility of a conversation with with an angry person that there isn't a possibility of with an ambivalent person. Yeah, and it's kind of like when I had some of those conversations. Um, with folks that were mad at the shack or, or mad at, you know, the way <laughs> I said, it's a, it's a piece of fiction. It's like, I said, you know what? C.S. Lewis was 
much hated by a lot of that crowd back in the 60s and 70s, you know, in the 50s. He's our guy like, now. they didn't know what to do with Lewis, man. What's that? Yeah, he's our oh, guy. Oh, yeah, now he's mainstream. Yeah, he's mainstream. Yeah, he's yeah. dead. Yeah, I know. That's because he's so dead. We'll, we'll forgive him his indiscretions, yeah, his literary indiscretions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He has witches. Oh, yeah. Oh, well. Who cares? <laughs> this is true. But, see, that's part of – when I've had talks with people about about the shack, um, when I go into my story and how it impacted me, that's part of doing this ministry, too. People listen – it's kind of like people listen because they're trying to get gain information on how to stop – this horrible bad habit that they have, right? Call it yeah. addiction, call it a compulsion, whatever it is. They want, they want, they're listening to maybe get some morsel that will help them flip the switch. And there's no switch, you know. It, it, it's a relate. Sex is a relational thing, you know. When, when we just make it physical, I call it half sex, right? It's just half of the experience. It's just, it's just naked bodies. But when the when the sexual experience comes down to a story, a love story between two people who know each other, then it's different. And when I, I explained some of this to this guy about the shack, I said, I said, here's what I loved about the shack. I said, I had my own great sadness. Um, I was sexually abused. I didn't tell anybody until I was like 38 years old, but I always I had this thing in too. me. Just so you know. Oh, where are you? Wow. See that? Yeah. And it, it's yeah. weird. Like it just, it just eats at you from the inside until you just can't hide it anymore and and for me my that was part of my great sadness so i ha i my identity was linked in with shame and just I, I mean i didn't just think i did bad things i thought that my identity was bad like you are the epitome of bad and i said the shack helped solve that for me that shack helped see my relationship between god the father who yes is sovereign um, the Holy Spirit, who is always with me, right? And, and Jesus, who is Savior, who is, you know, uh, these three relationships that Mac has with God, the one God of the Bible, is beautiful. And, and that's what that's what it was. And it's a piece of fiction, man. It's a story. So it, when I say that, when I share with them that, they seem to really, you know, you can almost see it in their face, the kind of their finch clists go away or f clenched fists start to release and oh you know well i you know when we break it down I, I to that narrative yeah i don't think it's the as much the logic of what you're saying even though it is very logical i think is the fact that you let them into your world and so relationship changes the rules it just does you know somebody yeah. who has got an antipathy in terms of um all, all the issues around the gay community when when their son or daughter comes out, it changes the rules, because relationship yes, will trump will trump the rules, and uh, and and uh, and partly in terms of telling your own story, that just creates a space in which other people can can then step into, and they're no longer relating to you as a category anymore. They're relating to you as a human being, and that's part of what we're saying. There's got to be a way to have these conversations where we don't categorize, and 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 put people into uh, boxes and you know the the christian caste system or whatever and um so yeah all of that's involved in this right well it's a great book i think it's going to be a big hit paul it just uh it's kind of it continues sort of relationally where the shack sort of left off you know um and, and i love tony and crossroads but Lily is 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 just this uh, fragile soul, you know, who who's yeah. just trying to understand what 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 happened and what's happening, and what exactly. why we're all this big blue marble in the universe in the first place, right? Like a lot yeah. of us. Yep, I'm I'm with you on that. I love Lily. I love how she emerges. I love her voice. And uh, you dedicated. I'm really this grateful. You dedicated this book to uh, your sister. Uh, do you see uh, Debbie kind of Lily? In a, you know, in a, yeah, in a, in a way. I see all of us as kind of Lily in a way, but uh, she didn't know it until I just got a call from her a couple of days ago. And uh, I sent her my first hardback copy before it hit the presses and and, uh, and just wrote an inscription in the front. 
and I didn't tell her that I dedicated the book to her. And, uh, you know, I have, well, I have one sister and two brothers. And, um, and so she calls me and she said, I read the inscription and I cried. And then I made <laughs> the dedication and I fell apart. And wow. uh, she, she said, you will, have, you, you will never know how much that means to me. And I, and I knew it. As soon as it struck me that I want to do this, I, I want to dedicate this book to my sister, I knew that it would be important for her. And, um, and, and in that sense, you know, I'm dedicating to all of us. Like, this is important. This conversation is important. And, um, and, I, and I love the voice that is emerging in the conversation around it. So I'm, I'm kind of thrilled about the whole deal. Yeah, me too, man. I'm, I'm excited to see the uh, ripple effect, as it were. Yeah, I so appreciate it. Thanks for uh, taking the time to have me on the, on the podcast as you, well. You bet, and thank you. I'm going to... Yes, that was Paul Young. This is the end of part one. Yes, there's going to be two parts to this interview. Uh, I'll have the next one up next week. My name is Russ Shaw. Thanks for listening. Again, ASI247.org is the podcast web address for this here podcast. Thanks again. Till next time. Bye.